There's a really good book if you want to dive deeper into this topic called uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I think I've got the cover up here on the PowerPoint. Uh, Fee and Stewart wrote this. Um, this is a dense read. This is not one of those books you're going to pick up and you know get through in a couple of days. Uh, this is one of those books that you're really going to have to dive into and read slowly because they are very, you know, it's just a dense read. Um, but there's a lot of really practical stuff in there. Uh, written by a couple of good Bible professors uh, who try to write in such a way as, you know, the average person can understand it. Um, and so that's good. Um, let me just get through this real quick, and then I'll, we'll jump into kind of what we're going to do. There's three tools that you guys need to, to do a good Bible study. And by Bible study, I mean more than just passively opening up the Scriptures and reading. You need a good translation of the Scriptures... You need a good Bible dictionary, and you need a good commentary for particular books of the Bible. Um, now, a good translation, guys, and if you want to talk with me more about this afterwards, that's fine. Pretty much any of the modern translations, NIV, uh, ESV, NRSV, um, NASB, all, all those are going to be good. I would say to stay away from the King James Version uh, and the New King James Version. Um, those are both okay translations, but the reason I say to stay away from them is because the documents that were used to render those translations aren't the best Greek documents that we have available to us today. They actually use some documents that are newer uh, and have some mistakes in them. Um, that since, you know, the 1500s or 1600s, we found additional documents that are older and better preservations of the text. And so that's the only reason. And even that, like, it's not going to make a tremendous difference in your study, even if you did use the KJV or the, uh, the New King James Version. Um, so anyway, that's a good translation. A good Bible dictionary, we'll talk more about this in a little bit, uh, but like Erdman's Bible Dictionary, Zondervan Bible Dictionary, uh, New International can't remember the name of it. We'll, we'll get to it. Um, you want one of those tools, and that's just sort of a general overview of, like, big topics of the Bible. And then how many of you guys know what a commentary is? <laughs> Somebody, okay. A commentary, like, if I'm going to study, say, the book of Matthew, um, a commentary on the book of Matthew is a book that a Bible scholar has written uh, that is just an in-depth study of Matthew. So, like, I'm going to read the text of Matthew, and I'm going to read Matthew 1, then I'm going to go and I'm going to take my commentary, and I'm going to read uh, the author's uh, in-depth study of Matthew 1. I'm going to get a lot more out of that uh, from some guy who's maybe a Bible professor or Bible scholar or something. Now, uh, if you're going to grab a commentary, and we'll talk more about this, you need to check with your campus minister or your preaching minister and find out what a good commentary is before you just go and start buying them because there's a lot of garbage out there. And don't just Google it, you know, and like go get something or go watch YouTube videos on it or whatever. That's not a good way to do Bible study. Um, so anyway, there's my preliminary, okay? Now, what's the goal of Bible study? What's the goal? Get close to God, okay? But before you're able to do that, what do you need to do? You need to understand, right? And so the goal of good Bible study, the whole point of good Bible study is to get at the plain meaning of Scripture. Now, how many of you guys have said or heard it say, we don't really need to interpret the Bible. We just need to read it and do what it says. Has anybody ever heard that before? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, several of us. Um, let me tell you that that is impossible. You can't just open the Bible and read it without doing some form of interpretation. Because all of us, you know, we grew up in the 21st century United States, where we got the internet, we got television, we got all these things. I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and it's going to mean something to me. But then if, I would, if it was a thousand years ago, and I was in a different place, in a different society, and grew up under different circumstances, I could read that same passage of scripture... And it may mean something different if I'm in that certain location. And so it's real important for us to understand, first of all, that everybody interprets. When we open up the Bible and we read it, we are interpreting what that means to us. And uh, this is where we get in trouble. One of the hardest things about Bible study 
is making sure we arrive at a proper interpretation of any given passage. And uh, it's funny because different people use like different strategies and different rules for interpreting things. Um, let me just throw this out there. So open up to First uh, Corinthians. Let's have some fun. First Corinthians 11. Exegesis. How many of you guys have heard that word before? Okay, and I'm not teaching you a big word just because it's a big word and it's impressive. But exegesis, if you ever read a commentary or one of these Bible dictionaries, they're going to use some of these words that I'm using, and I want you guys to know what they mean. Okay, exegesis just means you're getting out of the text what's there. You're looking at it, you're getting out of the text what's there, and so. Um, it's just important to remember that while God's word is a word for us, it didn't start out that way. It was written to a specific group of people in a specific time, in a specific place, dealing with specific problems and circumstances. So how do you think the people in Corinth arrived at what it meant to, you know, for women to have long hair, or to have their head covered, uh, for men not to have long hair. What, what do you think, how do you think they read this? You know, do you think this text, this, this thing that Paul wrote to them, do you think it maybe meant something a little different to them than it did for us? Now, this is where you've got to get help sometimes, honestly. When you're doing exegesis, I'm going to look at this passage and, man, that's so weird. Why don't we do that today? Okay, I'm going to have to dig a little bit more, so this is where I'm going to go get a commentary or something. And, uh, and I'm going to look in and try to figure out what's going on. What I find out when I dig into this text a little bit more is in society in the first century, especially in Corinth, 
if you had a head covering on and you were a woman, it was telling everybody, I'm a respectful woman, uh, I have respect for my dad, I have respect uh, for my husband, I'm not sexually available, um, I have a head covering on. And so that's what, in their society, you, it was, that's what it was saying. But guess who didn't wear head coverings in Corinth in the first century? <coughs> Prostitutes. And so I learned that when I dig into the history a little bit. I learned that there's this temple to Aphrodite in Corinth that's famous for having a thousand simple prostitutes and priestesses. And you could go there, uh, and it was sort of like going to Vegas in the first century. Matter of fact, if people said you're acting like a Corinthian in the first century, this was an insult. It meant you are loose, you're, you're, you're kind of whorish, you know, you're, you're sort of just, you don't have any morals, you're acting like a Corinthian. Well, people would go to Corinth to party. And the way they would know the women they could party with is, well, they don't have a head covering on. That means they're sexually available. They're sort of broadcasting their sexuality. And sometimes in the first century in Corinth, uh, these trends and fads that would catch on, like uh, with, the, with the prostitutes or the people who party lots, kind of like in our culture today, celebrities, you know, sometimes they'll wear their hair a certain way, they'll wear a certain kind of clothes style, and it'll catch on in, in popular culture. Well, it was the same way back then, only the trendsetters were some of these kind of party animals. And so what you've got in Corinth is you've got women coming into the assembly trying to be fashionable. They're not wearing head coverings, and they're sitting in the assembly, the Christian assembly, where they were supposed to have repented of a lot of this behavior, and they're sort of broadcasting their sexuality. And then you've also got these deals where at that same time of Aphrodite, you had a lot of cross-dressing men and guys who were growing their hair out and dressing like women because not only could you go and pay to sleep with a female prostitute, you could also go there and pay to sleep with a male prostitute. Or you could go and pay to sleep with a female prostitute that's dressed up like a man. And so some of these women were shaving their heads and dressing like men. There was a lot of gender confusion, gender identity issues. A lot like today, you know. A lot of the same stuff. And so I go to that text now, armed with this knowledge of what's going on, how these people heard it. And it means something completely different to me reading it now than it maybe did five minutes ago when I didn't know any of that stuff, right? And so here's another thing. Um, the second part of good Bible study. Um, I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, okay. Let me, let me go back to this so I don't screw up. Uh, this passage is going to be really good or it's going to be horrible. And so we're going to go for the good. Um, exegesis is finding out the original intent of the scriptures. Eisegesis, another Greek word. Ex means out of. Eis means into. So exegesis, we're taking out of the scripture what it means. Eisegesis says, I'm coming to the scripture with preconceived notions and what I wanted to say, and I'm going to put that on the Bible. And I'm going to use the Bible to kind of justify what I think. That's eisegesis. One is good Bible study. Another is I'm going to start my own cult, and I'm going to be Jesus. Okay? You don't want to be the second one. You want to be the first one. Um, do I have another point up there? No. Okay, go to the second one. Okay, so the first step, guys, is we want to take out of the text what it meant to them. And a good control for good Bible study, this is a really important rule, but a text cannot mean something for us today that it did not mean for them in the first century. A text cannot mean something for us today that it did not mean for them in the first century. Okay? So, um... We've got to learn to hear the same word in the here and now. This is another funny word. Uh, there's another funny word used to describe this called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. How many of you guys have ever heard the word hermeneutics? Okay, some of you. It's weird. Um, but that's what it means. It means that we're taking the Bible, basically it's the so what. Like what does this mean for me today? Well, I'm going to figure that out. Here's how to apply this. That's, that's a hermeneutic, okay? Um, so kind of weird. And let's see here. 
Okay. Um, so the basic rule, like I was saying, a text cannot mean what it never meant for them in, uh, in the first century. Exegesis comes first, then we get to hermeneutics. Um, and so looking back at this 1 Corinthians 11 passage, what it meant for them in the first century for women to have their heads covered and for men not to. A couple things. What do you think? Men need to act like men. Women need to act like women. Is that... Is that one thing we could say that's fair to take from that text? Okay, I would say yeah. Um, men need to not dress effeminately, uh, broadcast you know that form of sexuality or that form of perversion. Uh, women need to dress like women. Also, women need to not broadcast their sexual availability when they come together for assemblies, because these were the context of this is we're coming in the Christian assembly. Uh, so that's another timeless truth we could take out of that. And so guys, the big idea is you cannot look at this text and then apply it today. It would be a misapplication of this text to say all the women in here need to have head coverings on this morning. Because in our culture, it means something different than it did for them back then. So anybody have a problem with that? <coughs> if you do, it's okay. We'll work through it. Okay. Nobody? Nobody's brave. Haven't you ever heard people say, though, that, uh, you know, a lot of what's written in the Bible is culturally dependent, and if the culture changes, then, you know, it's cool. Like, how many of you guys have heard today uh, people say that uh, all the scriptures condemning homosexuality in the first century were only there because uh, homosexuality was so, so bad, like, in, in society, it was seen so horribly in the first century, but now it's okay. Like we're cool with it. So, anybody heard that? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Here's the thing: culture is not divinely instituted. Culture isn't divinely instituted. Um. What we're looking for when we're studying the Bible is we're trying to get at what is divinely instituted. And so when we're studying the scriptures, we want to look for principles um, or timeless truths, understanding that the application of that principle or timeless truth may look different today than it did in the first century. Does that make sense? Okay, I feel like I'm not explaining this very well. Um, somebody look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Just give you an example. I think this will be a lot a little easier. 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, somebody read verse 26 really loud. Loud and proud. Read all God's people with a holy kiss. Did you hear that? 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Greet all of God's people with a holy kiss. <coughs> now, is that a command? Yes. It's written by the Apostle Paul. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. How come you guys didn't give me a kiss this morning when I came in here? I can kiss you if you want. Max wants to kiss me? I'm okay with that. But, you know, it's in the Bible, in fact. Max, you're just being faithful. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? Why don't we do this? Would that be weird? Yeah. Would that be weird? If, would you bring your friends to church if everybody came up and started kissing them? Would they want to come back? Some of them are probably would. Um, <laughs> I'm coming back to this church. It's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, most people would not, right? They wouldn't want to come back to that. Why? Because that's weird. We don't do that, right? But if you go to the Middle East today, even today, just like back uh, 2,000 years ago, they still have this as part of their culture. If you go into any Muslim country and you have a friend there, they're going to come up and they're going to they're gonna, like smack you on each side of the cheek. Or you go to Italy or whatever, that's the way you greet one another. And it's not like a full-on, you're not making out with it. You, know? you don't even make a contact. Like you're just sort of, you know, it's almost, a, you're making a noise on either side. That's a holy kiss, right? It's, it, that's different than an unholy kiss. Um, holy kiss, right? So yeah, uh, you smack on each side. But that's weird. Even if you did that, like even if you weren't making contact, if I brought my friend to church, people 
Lord, how am I doing that? They're like, dude, I ain't coming back here. This is weird. <laughs> how do we greet one another? You know, high five. Give him a dap. Hug, shake hands. Smile. You know, how you doing? Uh, that's how we do it, right? That's how we do it in our culture. But in their culture, that would be weird. Like, you come up and you start touching a woman. Oh, my gosh. What are you doing? Like, we're going to take you out back and beat the crap out of you for that. I mean, you don't do that. Like, you know, and that would be totally weird for them. So here's the point, guys. What's the principle that Paul is teaching behind this call to greet one another with a holy kiss? Go back. Do the steps, okay? First, start with exegesis. What did it mean to them? Very simply, greet one another warmly. Greet one another warmly. That's the timeless truth. That's the principle. Greet one another warmly. That's the command. Now, get down to number two, hermeneutic. How do we apply this today? Because this was written 2,000 years ago in a different culture with different social expectations, okay? They greeted one another warmly with the holy kiss. How would we apply this today in our culture? How do you jump from there to here? Suggestions? Greet one another. You know, hug, handshake, high five. Show that you care about one another. When you see another person, be glad that they're there. Show them you're glad that they're there. Show them you're glad, right? That is good Bible study. That's good biblical interpretation. It, our application, okay, the timeless truth is the same. Let me just put it this way. The timeless truth is the same no matter what culture you're in. The principle is the same. The principle, greet one another warmly, is the same in their culture as it is today. But the application of that principle is going to vary from culture to culture. The principle is the same. It's timeless. But the application of a timeless principle is going to vary from culture to culture. And this is why Bible study is so complicated sometimes. Because you have different groups of people who have different ideas about either one of those two things. Either it meant something different to the people to begin with, or it should be applied differently today. But a good control, like I mentioned earlier, is a text will never, ever mean something different for us that it didn't, that it, you know, it's never meant for them. The application may be different, though. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Alright, um, so, let's just do this. Everybody have a Bible? Everybody bust out your Bible and open up to the book of Jude. And what I'm going to give you in the remainder of our time, do I have anything else on here? Yep. Okay, yeah, let me hit this real quick and then we'll jump into Jude. You got a bunch. Um, yeah, dealing with problem passages, in, in many cases, the reason the problem passages are so difficult for us is that they weren't written to us. Um, and so the original readers knew precisely what was being addressed, while sometimes we just have to guess. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Yeah, let's just skip that. You can go on past it now. I think I already sort of explained some of that. So. Okay, yeah, here's the Bible dictionaries I was telling you guys about. Uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is the one that, uh, if you're poor, you can get that on Kindle for like three bucks, two ninety nine. And so if you don't have a Bible dictionary, you need to get one. Um, if you're going to do what I'm going to teach you to do here. What I do with the guys in my small group is I actually teach all of them to do this. We spend a lot of our time, like, they'll go home and uh, they'll be breaking down books of the Bible and then we'll get back together uh, the next week and we'll talk about what we've all kind of found. Um, and so it's been fun for me to kind of teach people to do this. Uh, but the International Standard Bible Society, it's okay. Just remember, guys, not everything that's written in there is, like, from the Lord. Uh, these are human authors that are writing this stuff. Uh, and so, there, I mean, there's stuff that I'm going to disagree with in any resource that I point you to, and there's stuff you're going to disagree with, but that's part of the fun of Bible study is, you know, we have the freedom to look at the scriptures ourselves and kind of figure some of this stuff out. But it's a good resource, generally. Uh, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary, good resource. Urban's Dictionary of the Bible, 
Uh, all those are good resources. So if you don't have one of those, you're going to want to get one. Uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. What I'm going to teach you guys today is how to break down an epistle. Um, does anybody know what an epistle is? An epistle is a letter uh, that's in the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is composed of letters. Uh, and so what I'm going to teach you here is just the method that I use to break down uh, specifically a letter. But it can be applied to this stuff to other books of the Bible. And so this is going to be helpful for you. Uh, but the standard epistle format, you know, they start out with the name of the writer, the name of the recipient, number two, number three, they're going to move to the greeting, then they're going to move to a prayer and thanksgiving, and number five is the body of the letter, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time studying, is usually the body of the letter, and the number six is the final greeting and farewell. It's helpful to know that this is how the standard epistle is written, so that you spend the majority of your time where you need to spend it. Also, sometimes epistles don't follow this format, which is also going to tell you something. Like in Galatians, when Paul wrote Galatians, he was really mad. He was so mad that he didn't even bother to, to like give them <laughs> the greeting or anything because he was just mad. So he just goes right into like chewing them out. Uh, and so, you know, that tells you something. Um, so not a huge deal, but, you know, that, that uh, can be helpful to you. Um, but here's uh, what I want to get to. We're going to work through asking, I believe, seven questions of the book of Jude. Go ahead. And so here's some steps to break down an epistle. And we're going to, we're going to actually do this. Getting the historical context, what's the situation being addressed? Number one, read the book all the way through in one sitting. Do this at least twice before moving on to the next step. Um, and so very quickly, this is 25 verses. Uh, I'm going to skip down to verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already knew all this, know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. <coughs> In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. It's a very happy book. Uh, Eden, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that have been committed in their ungodliness, of all the defiled words. Uh, ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires and learn about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you and follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. 
to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. All right. So that's the first thing we want to do. And I want to do that twice. When I'm going to sit down and I'm going to break down a book, I want to read through that twice. I want to get the general flow of the argument in my head. I want to figure out what's going on. I'm also going to be making middle notes because uh, number two, um, list everything that tells you something about the recipients in the letter and problem or situation being addressed, okay? What do you think is going on in the book of Jude? What is he going back to a lot? Any, anybody? Can you see? Uh, leadership. Leadership, right? What's the problem that's being addressed here? What's, what, who, who's being infiltrated here? Okay? In verse 3 and 4, there's a group of people among whom false believers have slipped, or false teachers. They're teaching that God's grace gives them a license to sin. That's what you see from verses 3 and 4. There's people that are teaching, oh, God loves everybody, he forgives everybody. It's better to get his grace, so let's just sin all we want to. Okay? Verse 5 and 7, this tells me um, that this is a Jewish audience. Because Jewish history is recounted. He's not going to recount Jewish history to a bunch of Gentiles, because Gentiles don't know it and they don't care. It, it, they haven't connected with it. But Jude is writing uh, to this group of Jews. Um, and, and he writes in... Uh, I think maybe verse 7, he says, though you already know all this. 5, 6, or 7, I can't remember where. And he's referring to the Old Testament. So he's like, you guys know the Old Testament. Okay, that Jewish audience, okay? Verse 10, these false teachers are slandering whatever they don't understand while they just continue to party. Verse 11, there's another Old Testament reference. You know these are Jews. Verse 12, uh, apparently these false believers were continuing to be active in the church even though uh, their lifestyle and their teaching was ungodly. And I can walk you through the rest of this, um, but there's several indications just from my first reading of the text where I can get at what's going on. Because what I'm trying to do in these first four questions is get the historical context. I'm trying to figure out what's going on at the time that this letter is being written, what's the problem being addressed, um, and that's going to help me understand how these people read this letter to begin with. Because that's, remember, exegesis. That's where we're trying to get. What did it mean to them? And then number three, okay, this is where I'm going to turn to that outside source on step three. This is, I've already read this on my own. Don't open the outside sources until you've read the Bible on your own and made some notes on your own. Don't be tempted just to jump right into the commentaries and what does he say? No, read it on your own. God gave you a mind so that you can work on this yourself. So don't be lazy and go straight to step three. Do steps one and two first, okay? Then in step three, this is where I'm going to uh, open up my Bible dictionary. And who am I going to find out Jude is? Anybody know who Jude is? This is Jesus' little brother. This guy is actually one of the guys that at one time was saying, Jesus is crazy, and you people need to quit listening to him. We need to take him off, and we're going to keep him over here, because he's nuts. He's out of his mind. He was one of the guys that rejected his brother, thought his brother was a false messiah and a false teacher, and then what happens? His brother's crucified on a cross, and then he's risen up from the dead later, and suddenly Jude is not just a disciple, he's a leader in the kingdom of his older brother, Jesus. And so that's pretty cool. I wouldn't have known that unless I looked here. Um, then I find out that he's not an apostle, uh, that he's Jewish, and he's writing to fellow Jews. Uh, that this was written in the first century. Um, it resembles 2 Peter fairly closely, like just the whole form and everything. Uh, and there's no real clear date on when this was written. You know, it was first century, uh, but there's no real clear date. So you get all that from the Bible dictionary. So that, you know, that gives you a little bit more insight. Then number four, this is just an optional step. But if it's helpful, make a list of keywords or repeated phrases that highlight the author's main intent. And so I wrote, like, you know, immorality. I wrote down ungodly. And so, you know, I would go and maybe look at what those words mean. Um, but uh, that's just, you know, that's if you want to. That's kind of extra. The first three steps are what you want to do. And so, again, what's the point of exegesis? Getting at what it meant to the people then. 
You want to figure out how the people in the first century read this letter themselves, how they understood it themselves. Now we're going to get down uh, to the more of the meat of what you'll do in this. And that's uh, on numbers 5 and 6. You can go ahead and put both of them up there. Okay, so in number 5, what I do, guys, is I usually will copy and paste a book electronically into a Word document. And then I will go through, and I like using the NIV because the NIV works in paragraphs. And what I'll do is at each paragraph break, I'll hit enter and I'll put some space there. And then I'll put a bullet point that says what? And then I'll put a bullet point under that that says why? And number five is the what, okay? In a maximum of two sentences, I'm gonna write down basically a repeat of what this paragraph is saying. And so if it's six lines, I'm gonna try to put it in two sentences. I'm gonna try to encapsulate just what it's saying. This is just me putting it in my own words. What is it saying? So on this, um, let's see here. Just look back at uh, three through, was it three and four? Yeah, three and four. That's one paragraph. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. So what... I put this in my own words. I wanted to write an encouraging letter about our shared salvation, but instead feel led to urge you to stand up for your faith against the ungodly people among you. These ungodly people are using grace as a license to sin, thereby rejecting the lordship of Jesus. Those were my two sentences. You may write it a little bit differently, but when you rewrite something in your own words, what are you doing? <coughs> you're getting it in your head and your heart. You're, you're taking it to another level of understanding and you're putting it down on paper there's something that happens intellectually when we do that that's, that's healthy when we're trying to understand what somebody's saying. And so it's really nice with the written text, you can do that. And so you rewrite it, put it in your own words. And then the second point, in a maximum of one sentence, explain why you think the writer says this right at this point. And so what I put on this one for the why is ungodly, self-centered people had infiltrated the church and needed to be stood up against. That's, and, and usually, guys, the first couple of verses of the body, that's going to tell you what the entire letter is about, too. And that's, that's true here. And so I've gotten some valuable insight into my understanding of the rest of Jude just by focusing heavily on this first paragraph here. And uh, putting it in my own words, and then why do I think he said this? Because the whole problem is there's people, there's false believers that have infiltrated the body, they're sitting among the believers, they're, they're in the church, just living these ungodly lifestyles, and they're telling everybody it's okay because God is loving and graceful. Does that sound like the world we live in today? Yeah. Okay, same kind of stuff. So this is one of those letters that will really give us some valuable insight into how to deal with people today. Um, but you guys get this? There's a third one. Get what I'm doing? Okay. I'm going to do this for the whole letter. And so I'm going to go through what... Why? What? Why? What? Why? On each paragraph. And by the end, I'm going to have in my mind what this dude said, my best understanding of it, and why I think he said it. Okay? Hey, there's a third one. What's up? There's a third one. There's a third one? Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's the last step. Okay. Um, the last step is, uh, is the, the whole point of this whole process. Okay. What are we trying to get at, guys? What did we say uh, is the goal of good Bible study? We want to get at the plain meaning of Scripture, right? How do we get at the plain meaning of Scripture? Well, first, we have to understand it as the people in the first century understood it. We've got to figure out what it meant for them. Then we've got to figure out how that's going to look to apply that in our culture and our time today. And a text can't mean something different for us that it didn't mean for them in the first century. And so the way I'm going to get at that number two, the hermeneutic, uh, that funny word, the so what, like how do I apply this today? I go through these steps down through point six. I get to the end of the letter, and then at the end, I'm going to write underneath all this work I've done, I'm going to write real big, timeless truth. Timeless truth. And then I'm going to put another series of bullet points under that. And what I'm going to do now, after I've done all this other work, and after I've spent a lot of time 
is I'm going to go back through this letter again, and I'm going to look for principles based on the work that I've done. What are some timeless truths or some principles that I can pull out of this letter? And here's just some examples. You know, and some of these are really obvious, guys. The greatest truths of the Bible, guys, the Bible generally is not hard to understand. It's really not. It's not that we don't understand it. It's just that we don't want to do what it says sometimes. How many of you guys have read that passage that says, do everything without complaining to Rome? And then you complain about it because you don't like it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that we don't understand. It's that we just don't want to do it. It's hard. Okay? But, and I say that because most of these are obvious. But like, the first time was truth I'm going to pull out of this. Faith must be fought for in the midst of ungodliness. Would you guys agree that, that this book is teaching that? Okay, that's a timeless truth. Now, is that truth going to change in a thousand years? Is that truth still going to stand? Okay, it stood in the first century, it stands now, it's going to stand to the end of time. Faith must be fought for in the midst of ungodliness. It's timeless, it transcends culture. Ungodly behavior and attitudes must be confronted at law. Would you agree that this book teaches that? Yes, timeless truth. Um... Ungodly lifestyles and attitudes must be taken as seriously as the teaching of false doctrine. Have you guys ever thought of that? Did you know that people were called false teachers in the first century who were teaching the right things? They were just living the wrong lifestyle? Did you know they were still called false teachers? Yeah. Right? Um, the fruit of godliness is evident in both attitude and lifestyle. While the fruitlessness of ungodliness is also evident. That was another one I pulled out. Um, fault finding and slander are not minor issues. That behavior is evil. Uh, slandering celestial beings, whether good or evil, is considered evil. And I just went through and, and made a bunch of these. Even the angels will be judged. That's something that I pulled out. Uh, hell is eternal. Verse 7 says it's eternal fire. Um... So anyway, I just I went all the way through this and, and like did all that. That's how I break a book down. And when I've got guys that I'm discipling, this is one of the first things I teach all of them how to do is how to break a book down. And what you'll find is um, if I'm studying like a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or if I'm studying something from the Old Testament, there are some different things I want to do with some of these different books that are maybe slightly different than this epistle breakdown. But for the most part, you can take these steps that I'm giving you this morning, and you can break down just about any book of the Bible and get out of it what God would intend you to have. And so this is incredibly valuable um, if you guys will just take this and do it. And what I've learned, like, I started, I became a Christian when I was 23, and I started digging into the scriptures, and I started getting on these Christian forums, um, which, you know, this was before Facebook or any of this stuff. And I would get on there, and I would argue with these dudes. And, uh, oh, it's this way, it's that way. And it's all these different denominational backgrounds and stuff. We would just get together and do it. We would fight online about what the Bible meant. Um, and it's funny, like, how many different ways there are to read the Bible but that's because people are approaching the scripture from different places and they're not following steps to good Bible study for the most part. That's why you have people reading like 1 Corinthians 11 where it says women need to have their heads covered and they're going to their churches and saying, you better have this done by next Sunday, you know, otherwise you're not going to be able to come back. Um, that still happens today because people don't want to show their Bibles. So anyway... Um, that's all I had, uh, and I've got we got some extra time. So if you got got any specific questions or scriptures you want to look at or anything, uh, hopefully I won't send any any of you to help uh, if I answer. So I mean I might. There's always that risk. Um, so you're kind of taking uh, taking your soul in your own hands. But you can you can ask a question if you'd like. Anybody? We got it all figured out. Okay, great. Got one back here. How much time are we supposed to have? Get his hand up. I have a question. Uh huh. I'm a GED student at San Fe College, and I'm thinking about doing Bible study at college and how to explain. 
survival with people who have low um, um, level. Like learning disabilities? Yes. Okay, uh, well that's the thing, man. Like, scriptures are pretty easy to understand for the most part. Uh, the Bible was written on about a fourth grade level. And 90% uh, of it, like, it's just straight. Like, you read it, and, and there, you'll occasionally run across stuff that is harder to understand. Um, but, I mean, a lot of it uh, is pretty straightforward. Um, and so I think a lot of people just don't read at all because they're afraid that they're not going to understand it. But, um, you know, I think diving in, but then also having people around you that you can ask questions to uh, is a good thing. Um, so is that, is that helpful? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, what, what I would say, though, to you is, man, read it. And then if you got a question, you got Donnie, you got others around you, you can take it to him and ask him. I, I know I got Donnie in I was saying, I want to read that later to teach other students to yeah, um, well, I think being a good example of being a student yourself uh, is a great place to start, man. And if they want to turn around and read with you, I think that's great. I think that's great. You have another one? Yes, sir. For a guy who's just starting, you know, with Christianity and stuff, what would you consider a good starting point? A good starting point? I would say uh, I would go right and read the book of John. I would just dive into the book of John, man, and uh, memorize the scripture. Like, if you've got specific uh, struggles, like for me, I struggled with lust and addiction and all kinds of things. And so, um, whenever you're a new Christian, I think you're especially susceptible to temptation. And so, not only would I be reading, I would be memorizing passages of Scripture that apply to your specific struggles or areas of temptation. So that whenever you're tempted, you can quote that Scripture. That's what Jesus did uh, whenever he was tempted by the devil as he was quoting scripture. Uh, and that's how he combated temptation. And so um, I would do that too. And if you don't know what scriptures, like there's guys like me or, you know, others uh, that you can ask that can point you to those. So. Hey, um, Wes, uh, I wanted to uh, go back to the, uh, your, the way you explain the application and the principle and the whole culture thing. Um, do you, are there some applications that would still be the same uh, in our culture today? And um, also, are there cultures that would, okay, given that culture is not a, a divine, Thing or it's something that is uh, given by God. It's just the way we separated ourselves. Um, how do we... Okay, as a, somebody who's um, sharing the word out there, how, how do we apply that to other people's culture? We live in America and we don't all have the same culture. That's a good question. Um, okay, the first, the first question was, are there scriptures that are just directly applicable without having to jump through these hoops of what does this mean to them and their culture? And what does this mean in our culture? Is that kind of, yes, there's, I would say most of the commands uh, that Jesus gives us or that are given in the <coughs> word are directly applicable. Uh, like we don't have to think, well, what did that mean to them? Whenever Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, uh, that meant go into all the world and make disciples in the first century. Today, it means go into all the world and make disciples. There's tons of examples where, yeah, like you don't, there, there's not a big question. Um, but you will occasionally encounter stuff like the head coverings or holy kisses or eating meat sacrificed to idols or, you know, stuff like that where it's like, okay, I'm going to have to study this more to figure this out. Uh, but I would say, guys, whether you think something is hard to understand or not, you still need to do these steps. You still need to do your exegesis. You still need to go in and try your best to figure out what it meant to them. Because sometimes it's not uh, just totally obvious to a passive reading of the text. You still always need to do these steps. The second question is, 
um, how do you apply uh, a principle across different cultures? Well, again, Max, this is where it gets complicated because it's going to look different in different cultures. Um, the example we talked about with the Holy Kiss is a good example. I can still go to the Middle East today and greet people with a holy kiss, and it's not going to be weird. But if I try to shake their hand, uh, and God forbid I do it with the left hand, uh, that's going to offend somebody because that means something in their culture. Um, but over here, you know, it would be weird. And so that, but the timeless truth, the principle, is the same. Greet one another warmly. The application of that truth is going to look different in different places. And so it depends. That's my answer. Uh, is you figure it out, you got to use the brain God gave us to figure out these social expectations and cultural mores. Paul said, I became all things to all men, to, that I might win some. What he meant by that is, when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm going I'm to act like a Gentile. When I'm with the Jews, I'm going to act like a Jew. Because it's not their cultural expectations that matter, it's Jesus that matters. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do to navigate these waters of cultural expectations so I can get them to Jesus, because that's what really matters. So we got to be good missionaries. We've got to use our brains. And we got to learn some of this stuff. And it's complicated. That's a complicated answer to say it's complicated. <laughs> yes? Uh, my question is, um, as, far as, as far as the study, the Bible, when you come across something you're trying to research or understand more, let's say such as like understanding Jesus and our, Jesus' parents, Understanding the tribe, where they come from, going back and looking at his history. I see all these names, I'm like, okay, I know they mean something, so what's to it? Man? I see all these tribes. Is that information obtainable as far as going back and looking, studying through their literature? Yeah, uh, it is. Um, most of that that's mentioned in the New Testament, we can find some examples of it in the Old Testament. Um, the New Testament story of Jesus is a continuation of the Old Testament story. Um, and there's a lot to that, but basically God promised he was going to send a guy to make everything right. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And so I think it's fun to go back and, you know, and study the Old Testament. Uh, but there's a lot there. And uh, you could use some guidance. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can go back and look at all that. One of the really cool things and convincing things about Christianity is how much there is to go look at, uh, evidence-wise and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I'd be happy to help you. I think that kind of stuff's fun. So, when the portion you mentioned uh, memorization, uh -huh. that's a huge thing for me that I feel like I'm terrible. I mean, you know, you know my story. I want to live in the world. That, do you have any tips? Do you have any tricks? Anything that can help us who might struggle with that? Memorization. Memorization. Might have to learn this a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, your brain is like a muscle, and the more you exercise it, which you guys, what you feed on most days is, is honestly it's junk food. Like when you're getting on Facebook and you're just reading headlines and you're going from that to that to that to that, and you're not really honing in and focusing, you're actually <laughs> rewiring your brain to be stupid. And I'm not trying to be offensive, because I do it too, but like uh, there, there are neurologists and stuff who are coming out and saying the, the media we're taking and the stimuli we're exposing ourselves to, where we're not working through a cohesive, coherent like thought, we're not reading a novel, we're just looking at headlines all the time, that actually makes it harder to do what you're talking about doing, which is memorization. And we don't memorize anything anymore. All your contacts are in your phone, you don't need to memorize how to get somewhere because you got a GPS. Uh, you know, there, there's just so much now that technology has affected. But the, to short answer, how to how to get better at memorization is to start to do it and start with a verse, then add another one, then add another one, then add another one. What you'll find is if you are disciplined about doing that, just like going to the gym and working out, pumping iron, whenever you're memorizing, whenever you're doing math, whenever you're doing stuff that requires you to engage this thing up here that we don't have to use much anymore, it gets stronger. And you get to where you, you are amazed at what the brain God gave you will do. You're like, I can memorize a whole book of the Bible and not get any of it wrong? Yeah, you can. But you got to work your brain out. Any of you guys, I think, could probably do a lot more than you think you could. Um, are we supposed to be done? Yes. Okay, I don't care. I mean, nobody's in here. Um, 
If you guys need to get up and go. I got a question. Yeah. One, one question, sorry. I just want to get out of it. So, I can't think of any right now, but as far as like uh, word breakdowns, what would you suggest as far as like maybe like a big word that uh, maybe not be common for now? For yeah, today? I think uh, the way most of you guys do it is you probably get on and look up the English definition. That's a horrible way to do Bible study. You don't, don't do that. Um, if you're going to go do a word study, you need to get uh, some tools that deal with the original languages. Um, because what a word means in the original language in Greek is sometimes a lot different than how we would render it in English. And I can tell you that's very complicated. It's a whole new level of study. Um, I've got 10 semesters under my belt in Greek, three in Hebrew, and I can tell you I still don't know, like, most, like, I don't know anything. I could impress any kindergartner overseas at my reading level, so I'm not trying to impress anybody at all. But I can tell you it's just, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing that. It's very complicated. Um, but it's good to do. Just if you find something that says this word means something and it's totally different than anything you've ever heard, I would just say, like, Go ask somebody, you know, make sure. Uh, let me give you an example, though. Galatians 5. Somebody uh, look at Galatians 5. It says, the acts of the sinful na nature are obvious. Yeah. Sexual immorality, debauchery, impurity. Hold on, let me get there. Um, 19 to 21. Yeah, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. How many of you guys practice witchcraft? <laughs> I did. I didn't know it. But it is. You know what the Greek word for witchcraft is? Pharmakeia. What does that sound like? Pharmacy. You know what witches did in the first century? They got you high, bro. <laughs> There was there was these uh, there were these correlations between the occult and like psychedelics and just getting hot, love potions. I had some love potions. Um, you know there was all that stuff. And some of y'all are laughing because you're like, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Pharmacay. And so I always point out when I'm studying the Bible with somebody. Uh, hey, we're done. Don't come in. Uh, I always point out when I'm studying with somebody. Okay, you know this is talking about drugs. And yeah, there were some incantations and spells, but like this is drugs, okay? You go down and keep reading. Um, so you got you got witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. You know what a faction is? That's a that's a religious sect. That's a group of people who say we're the only ones who have the truth, and if you don't follow it the way we say it, you're going to hell. Uh, that's some like conservative Church of Christ people right there. I grew up Church of Christ. And we told everybody they were going to hell. I told my next door neighbor they were going to hell. They told me I couldn't come back over until I told them, I had to quit telling them that. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't doing it right. They used instruments in their worship service and they spoke in tongues. You guys are going to hell. Um, yeah, I had, to, I had to tell them I was sorry. And then I got to play with that and my friend again. Uh, but that's sectarian attitude, right? Careful. Keep going. Factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies. How many of you guys like orgies? Don't raise your hand. Um, <laughs> orgies. When I read orgy, I think group sex. That ain't what it means. I mean, it can mean that, but in the, if you go look at the Greek word, it means drunken revelry. So this wasn't limited to group sex. This is this is like going to the bar on New Year's Eve when everybody's getting poured out. That's an orgy, according to this word. You know, going to a keg party where everybody's getting messed up. Whether you're getting messed up or not, you're participating in an orgy when you're there. Wow, I didn't know that. Greek is fun. And so, you know, I go through these word studies and, and it, it does add another level of understanding. So how do we apply this? That's what it meant to them in the first century. Now I read that in English and it means something totally different to me because I'm reading it with my cultural understanding of what these words mean. But when I get down into the Greek and I start studying that, I learned what it meant to them in the first century. My application, my, my understanding of the timeless truth being presented is going to be different. Therefore, my application of these scriptures is going to be different. Okay? You see how important this is? Some of y'all are like, man, I just went to the bar in years. I was the DD. I thought it was okay. No, you were participating in an orgy. You're there by your presence giving approval to what's going on around you. 
And Jesus says don't do that. Paul specifically says don't do that. So, anyway. Question? Well, pretty much I was just asking to follow up on his question. Like when you say tools, so he's saying like other than the dictionary uses the source. And with that thesaurus, is, is it better to use a thesaurus? No, don't use it. Don't use English. No, I got a Bible dictionary. Oh, a Bi yeah, Bible dictionary, yeah. If it's if it's biblically based, yes, those are good resources. But don't break out your English study tools to study English words that are translations of another language. That's kind of my point. That's not a good thing to do. Hey guys, we're, we've been done. If you want to tell them out there, they can come on in. We're just hanging out, and having fun. So.